and welcome to episode number 10 of October Surprise, a podcast created for citizens by citizens in Pennsylvania's new 16th Congressional District. I'm Jim Roddy, a lifelong resident of Northwest Pennsylvania and your host for today's podcast. A little bit of background on our podcast. October Surprise features a series of interviews designed to educate listeners in Erie, Crawford, Mercer, Lawrence, and Butler counties on key issues that face both our district and our two congressional candidates, incumbent Mike Kelly and challenger Ron Nicola. Each podcast will also discuss ethical leadership, which unfortunately is in rare supply in Washington, D.C. in 2018. We'll do a lot of talking today and throughout the month of October on this podcast, but our ultimate goal is action. For democracy to work, you have to participate. We can't be bystanders. So at a minimum, that means being an informed voter. You can help by sharing episodes of October Surprise with your family and at least one or two friends. You know, those on-the-fence voters, maybe they vote in midterms, maybe they don't, uh, the folks who live in our district. The ultimate action is to vote on Election Day. Let's surprise the special interest groups, the political action committees, and the big money when we take back our district on Tuesday, November 6th, and once again, put people first. Finally, I'm not a political veteran or a campaign strategist. I don't have all the answers, and a lot of people think neither do they. But together, we're going to learn what's happening in our district by talking with elected officials, grassroots leaders, and extraordinary citizens from PA-16 in each episode. Our special guest today is Dr. Joe Tallarico. He's an Erie native, graduated from Cathedral Prep, class of 1972. He lives in Zelianople in Butler County and currently commutes to Bedford, where he works as, as an anesthesiologist. He's been in practice for 38 years. He's also a member of the Western Pennsylvania Coalition for Single-Payer Healthcare, and he's a board member of Healthcare for All PA. Dr. Tallarico, thanks for your time today. Welcome to October Surprise. Well, nice to be with you, Jim. Great. And so this is one of two episodes that we will be launching today on October Surprise. Uh, this is episode number 10. We're going to get a doctor's perspective on health care. We're also releasing today episode number 11, where we talk with Brian Skibo of Hermitage, who is a brain cancer patient, and so we'll get a patient's perspective as well. So let me ask you first, from a, a doctor's perspective. So uh, folks know doctors make good money in our current health care system. The system works uh, well for them. So why are you an advocate for changes in our current health care system. A lot of folks are just let things be how they are. Uh, what, why do you want to make some changes to the system? Well, you know, I wasn't always a doctor. Um, hmm. I grew up uh, working class and probably probably really close to working poor. And um, over the years, I've seen so many people that were in that situation that just don't have the access to health care. Um, and, you know, in this country, we like to say that we have the best health care in the world, which we don't. Um, although, if you're if you're fairly wealthy and insured, you, you could make an argument that you do have the best health care in the world. But the whole system, it doesn't apply for the whole system because there's so many people left out. And I've just run into so many people that have, you know, that have uh, had uh, bad diseases or even not, not even really bad diseases, just chronic diseases that were not able to afford their, um, afford their health care, their medications. And um, I just don't think that's right. Got it. So you just touched on that, and that's what I'm curious to hear about your firsthand perspective working with patients. So you just mentioned about citizens don't have access to affordable health care. We also hear stories of medical emergencies forcing families into uh, financial crises. So from what you see, is that all real? Is it overstated, or is it potentially even understated? What are you seeing uh, from patients? To be honest with you, I think it's understated. Mm. 
Okay. Um, and why do you I, say I, that? Let me use let me use myself as an example. Over the years, we've had some some minor chronic diseases in the family um, that really weren't any any big problems, but uh, but they were they were diseases that cost a lot of money, and we had a lot of uncovered uncovered medical expenses. Um, you know, for me, that's not a big problem. I mean, I've had as much as fifteen to twenty thousand dollars a year in uncovered expenses. And again, like I said, for me, that's not a huge problem. Mm-hmm. But you know, if I was a if I was a guy uh, supporting a family of four on forty thousand dollars a year, my family would have gone without a lot of that care because we'd have to decide whether we got the medical care or whether we ate. And I just don't think that's right. Yeah, and that kind of gets down to the the moral part of this, where, like you said, forty thousand dollars a year, um, you know, is is one thing. But if you're making, I'm even going to do the math here. 10 hours or $10 an hour times 40 hours a week times 52 weeks a year. That's only $20,000 if you're making $10 an hour. So is that part of why you're active in this regard is because folks just can't afford to get the health care they need? Absolutely. Um, especially diabetics. I mean, diabetics, they, they have this $250 insulin vial. Um, that if you're making the twenty thousand dollars, you're uninsured or underinsured. You're not going to buy that insulin. And and these people are dying young. They're getting blocked in. They're going blind. They're getting kidney failure. Um, it's just not a good situation for at least at least twenty five percent of the of the people in the country, and probably including the underinsured and the inadequately insured, probably fifty percent of the country at least. When you say underinsured or inadequately insured, uh, what do you mean by that? And again, so I'll speak from my personal perspective. Um, when I was self-employed, you know, um, I was underinsured, and then I had insurance, but I'm not sure what all that covered. But for the last, you know, twenty-something years, I've worked for companies that provide full health care coverage for me. So, uh, what do you mean when you say underinsured? Well, you know, underinsured I think has expanded a lot over over recent years because. You know, with uh, companies that are that are cutting back on medical care, not cutting it out, but cutting back on medical care. Um, you know, it's not it's not uncommon at all to have three to five thousand dollars out of pocket. You know, between um, deductibles, copays, um, that's not uncommon at all to have five thousand dollars out of pocket costs. And again, for the guy making ten bucks an hour, that just doesn't cut it. Yeah. Okay. And, I and so those. To me, those people are inadequately insured. I mean, they probably aren't. They probably aren't technically underinsured, but they're certainly inadequately insured. I see. So the gap in order for them to get the the health care coverage that they need, even if something covers half of it or two thirds of it or something like that, that remaining third is just too much of a burden for them. And so they'll either, like you said, have to really really difficult choices to make, and oftentimes the choices that they they just won't get the health care that they need. And sometimes, you know, it's elective care that uh, that um, that the lack of that will lead to major problems down the road. And the perfect example: my last job at Presby in Pittsburgh was as a GI anesthesiologist. I was doing a lot of colonoscopies. Okay. Um, you know, colonoscopy—that's an expensive procedure. It's probably two thousand dollars by the time you get out the door, and, I, and probably more. Um, but again, if you have insurance, that's not a big problem because the insurance. There are most of it for most people, but the people that don't have the insurance or, or don't have coverage for that, they just don't get the colonoscopy because, let's face it, on a day-to-day basis, it's just not that important to them. And 
And I'm not calling that a bad decision. I think it's a good decision, whether you get your colonoscopy or whether you feed your kid. Um, and what happens is 10 years down the road, they have a colon tumor and colon cancer, and they die from something that if they would have found it five, 10 years before, they would have cut out a polyp um, and left the hospital, you know, an hour later. And it's interesting you bring that up. So you and I only had a brief conversation before we uh, we hopped on the phone here. So yesterday I had a colonoscopy. So I was uh, I was out all day. You know, I guess the day before doing the the prep and all that. If anybody's not familiar with the prep for colonoscopy, go search it on your own. I'm not going to describe it yeah. for you. It's uh, it's rather uh, painful. But uh, I'm 48. When I was 32, I was diagnosed with colon cancer, and uh, you know through a colonoscopy that I had actually because I was going, because I was insured, I was going and getting regular checkups and my blood work said that something was wrong so we, you know, dug into it further. But being in my 30s, if I didn't have health care, if I had to pay for that out of pocket, I would not have gone. I mean, because why would I? I, I yeah. was healthy. I was active. You know, I don't smoke. I uh, rarely drink. I exercise. I'm in, you know, I'm not overweight. I feel good. I never would have checked that out. And that's what I think you're kind of referring to. And the sign yesterday when I was getting the colonoscopy said about how thousands of people die every year from colon cancer, but it is one of the most treatable, most preventable diseases if you catch it early. But people just don't take the time to go do that. I'm, don't take the time and don't have the, uh, the means to go do that. I'm just very fortunate I had the means. If I didn't, if I did not have health insurance, I would not have checked I would not be alive today because there was a, uh, a, you know, there was a mass, there was a, a tumor in my colon. And there's so many people that that fit that to a T. Yeah. It's, it's really a shame. Yeah, it really is. It, it really is, and that gets into the, you know, some of the morality of it. Um, one thing that folks talk about is, hey, you know, I know this all sounds good that everybody gets health insurance coverage, but that's too much of a burden on the business uh, community. And so in episode number three for October Surprise, we talked to Erie healthcare advocate Cindy Purvis, uh, who focused not just on talking about the patients who'd be covered by a new healthcare system, but also the business community. And so she said a new system she thought would save small businesses money on healthcare. And I can say as a former business owner and a business manager, we saw that healthcare was, you know, rising by double digits, sometimes significantly high double digits uh, every year. So what's your perspective, Dr. Tallarico, on the health care burden that businesses are facing today and what can be done to alleviate that burden? Well, actually, the Pennsylvania plan, and I'm sure Cindy talked to you about that, um, was, would really be a boon to the, to the uh, small businesses, that, especially the ones that, that provide health insurances now. Uh, because what basically what that, what that would involve it would involve first first dollar cradle to grave coverage for everybody, and it would be a ten percent employer tax and a three percent employee tax. Now that sounds like a lot until you realize that most employers are paying well over ten percent of uh, salaries for health care right now. So that would go away totally. Not only would that go away, but also all the extra expenses, you know, the thousands of dollars that people have to pay out of their own pockets every year for health care. And that does a couple of things. I mean, and actually, that does a couple of things that are very beneficial for business. Um, if people have money, people have more business. And 
the people, the working people, would have more money. And, and I, I'm, I'm sure that in time that the uh, that any cost of that insurance would be more than more than taken care of by the increase in um, by the increase in business. Um, when all of a sudden your customer base increases by thirty percent, um, that's that's big. Um, the other thing. Oh, I lost train. Sorry, I lost my train of thought here. <laughs> That's all right. No, 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 no yeah. worries at all. Well, let me ask you this. So you mentioned about how this would be, this could be a boon to businesses, just that there'd be more money for people to spend from an economic standpoint. But we hear so much. I remember it was uh, job killing Obamacare, Obamacare, the job killer. And so uh, it's interesting because now we've had what a hundred something straight months of job growth. And you still have had, you've had Obamacare for what almost you know um, eight years now, uh, somewhere in in that regard. So yeah. I guess that's like the reality doesn't match the rhetoric is is what it seems, and it could even be better is what you're saying with a uh, a different healthcare plan, an improved healthcare plan. Yeah, I mean Obamacare was a was a, a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, it was certainly inadequate for a lot of people. One thing that it did do is it brought a lot of people, a lot of people, millions that had no health care at all, and it brought them into the system. And it got them access to what is potentially the best health care in the world. Um, what, it, you know, what it didn't do is it didn't take care of the underinsured and the inadequately insured, as I, as I spoke of before, um, because, you know, a lot of the plans really don't cover, well, they, they, they cover everything, but they don't cover, you know, the deductibles and the co-pays. Um, now, and the other, the other big advantage to Obamacare was the, the big expansion in Medicaid. So a lot of uh, millions of people that weren't covered before are covered now. Yeah. Uh, what it didn't do, it didn't take care of the problem of the people that are insured and still spending, um, spending an inordinate amount of their their own salaries for health care. And we right. have to do something about that. Right. So that you know what? The, when I lost my train of thought, the other thing that it does for patients is that it gets them to the doctor quicker. And, you know, in countries where they have first-dollar health care, patients, for example, Japan, I think the average person sees his or her doctor 13 times a year. Wow. In the United States, it's one or two. Yeah. Um, now, if you look at that, you say, oh, that's expensive. But it's not expensive because they're spending less per capita, much less per capita for health care for better outcomes than we are. Because people are getting their colonoscopies and people are seeing their doctor when, you know, with minor symptoms before they become major. And over, overall, it's saving money for the system. Exactly. This is very much a thing of if you spend the money, you'll spend a little bit on the front side uh, or you'll spend a ton later. I think that was an old, like, car muffler commercial or something or transmission commercial. Yeah. Like, you can pay me a little now or pay me a lot later, and that yep. really describes their healthcare system. Now, Dr. Yeah. Calarica, you were talking about, hey, here are some ways that I would improve our current healthcare system. But what's been happening in our current Congress, they've actually tried to reduce benefits and what's going to turn out to increase costs. And so Mike Kelly, who's our current rep for PA16, he was among those who voted to raise health care costs on workers in rural districts and remove pre-existing conditions. And folks are like, oh, what are you talking about for pre-existing conditions? Here's some examples. Alzheimer's, asthma, cancer, cerebral palsy, diabetes, dialysis, MS, organ transplants, Parkinson's, 
pregnancy and sleep apnea. And so that just seems like on the surface, again, for me, I'm a layperson. I'm, my involvement in the medical community is what I told you about, like just jumping in yesterday uh, as a patient. But it seems like it wouldn't be an understatement or it wouldn't be an overstatement that if Mike Kelly gets reelected, his party can close Congress and they get their way, you could have thousands of men, women, and children in PA 16 who lose their coverage. Fewer people than are covered today, and you're talking about how can we get more people covered. Again, am I overstating that, or what's your take on that? No, actually, you're not overstating that, and you have to understand where Mike Kelly's coming from. He's a multimillionaire. He's one of the most um, wealthy members of Congress. And you know what? If, if, if he lost his coverage, say, for a liver transplant, which he won't because he'll have government-paid insurance, and they'll, they'll continue to cover that, but if he if he lost his coverage for a, a liver, for a liver transplant, he could buy a liver transplant. Hmm. Now, that's there's probably only less than one tenth of one percent of the people in the country that could do that. But Mike's one of them that could do that. Yeah. So, I mean, what does Mike care? And, and it's obvious whenever you see the guy talk that he just plain doesn't care. And, and why do you say that? Uh, what, what makes you say that he doesn't care? Um, he, he keeps, I mean, he's still, um, he's, he's still a, a big proponent of the, you know, the tax cuts for the wealthy people, um, welfare for business because he, you know, because he's, he's a car dealer and a lot of his money comes from oil, um, subsidies for oil companies, all that stuff he thinks is great. But you know what? Food stamps? No. Um, Medicaid, I mean, he was against Medicaid expansion and, 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 and or, well, he was against Medicaid expansion nationwide because he's, he's federal. Um, but every time you see Mike Kelly talk, he, talk he, he tries to tell you he's for the working people, but let's face it, he's not. Yeah, uh, his uh, campaign commercial says he's one of us. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, when folks hear about changes to health care and some of the things, you know, health care for all, it's like, ooh, socialism, socialized medicine, government-run health care. Remember what was it 10 years ago? Death panels people are talking about. How do you respond when you hear pushback to changing our current health care system where people say, we wouldn't want to be like Canada, we don't want to be like these other companies and, and those horror stories? How do you respond to folks like that? Again, with you being on the inside of the health care system, you have insight into this. Uh, what do you say to folks uh, who are thinking? Well, you know what? In spite of the fact that I, I think that our resources are arguably at least as good as Canada's, and most likely a little bit better. But in spite of that fact, Canadians are healthier, they live longer, um, and they have, they have about, um, I think, 30% less per capita health care costs. So basically what they're doing is they're doing more with less. And they're doing it under, it's not really a socialized system, but they're doing it under a semi-socialized system. Um, and, you know, when people start talking about socialism, uh, people, they're, they're still using that word, you know, as a fear tactic. Um, when when most people, unfortunately, uh, talk about socialism, they're, they're talking about the Soviet Union, um, Cuba, and, and these are these are um, these are not socialist countries. These are countries where the where basically the government has taken taken over the spot of the plutocrats. You know, basically instead of the, of the business owners, the government is making all the money, and the workers are still are still uh, exploited. You know, probably just as much as they are here. Um, in some cases, even more. 
Yeah. Um, this this is not socialism. So real real socialism is from the ground up. In a real socialist system, for example, in the workplace, the the, the workers would have at least an equal say and maybe more say than the owners in, in what's produced, how it's produced, how people are paid, all that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, so basically when you talk about socialism, you're talking about things like, first of all, labor unions. Um, they're relatively socialist um, organizations, um, and they're not killing people. And and people that work for a labor, you know, people that are under a labor union do a lot better than people that aren't. Um and, you know, if fire departments, right. military, police departments, they're all socialist organizations. So if you really, people have to, people have to understand that socialism is not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, it just, uh, you have to dig into the details, again, beyond the sound right. bites. And, again, that's kind of why we started this entire podcast, where, you know, if we had a system that had where uh, you couldn't own a business, like you said, the government owned the business, everybody made the exact same, well, that's a, and everything fed, you know, the government, that would be a bad thing. But... I, you know, drove into my office this morning, not on my own road, a road that somebody else, you know, laid down for me on an electrical system that, you know, I didn't put together myself. There are appropriate times when we should pull resources. And I guess, are you seeing when you look across the entire world and you study this healthcare thing, there are other countries who are doing this and doing it well, like you mentioned those stats from Canada. But it seems like we pull our resources here in the United States on some things. But if, when it comes to health care, like, no, 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 we're not going to do that. Is it the big money, you think, that's behind it? You know, a lot of those pharma companies, a lot of those, you know, big health care companies that have a lot of money where they don't want their world rocked. Do you think that's why it isn't happening in the United States? So Is that one of the absolutely. reasons? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and to a lesser extent, the hospital systems have to take some responsibility, too. They're, they're basically in the same game. Um, and, and to a lesser extent, the doctors. Um, you know, let's face it, even even a very moral, very good person, if they have two choices and one's going to make them an extra dollar, they're going to choose the one that's going to make them an extra dollar, all, all other things being equal. Um, you know, I've been doing this for 30, 38 years. And up until recently, I never had one incentive. And most of, most of that time, I've been working for somebody else. I've been working for UPMC. And up until recently, I've never had any incentive that didn't involve more care, and more expensive care, um, and that's and, and they're not they're not the big they're not the big culprits compared to pharma and the insurance industry. Um, the insurance industry basically they're in the they're in the business of collecting premiums and paying out as little as possible, and that doesn't necessarily mean actually it doesn't mean at all refusing unnecessary care. It means refusing necessary care because it helps their bottom line. Um, now, with the drug companies, and as an anesthesiologist who works in critical care medicine, I see this firsthand on a day-to-day basis. We have, for the past at least five to probably ten years, we've had periodical shortages of, of um, critical care medicine. Things have saved people's lives. And the one thing that all these shortages have in common, they're all old drugs that are very cheap, and they're not making a lot of money by producing them. So what they're doing is they're diverting their resources to 
you know, developing the new antidepressant, the new um, anti-cholesterol pill, you know, um, that they make a lot of money on, and they're just not producing enough of the... One perfect example is a drug called norepinephrine, that when somebody's in shock and they run them on a drip to keep their blood pressure up until they can recover enough that, you know, that they can get them off, um, and without that drug, they die. And we've had critical shortages of drugs like that. Mm. Um, and again, it's because they can't make they they can't make enough money on that drug to make it worth their while to divert some of their resources. That's how capitalism just doesn't work for necessities. It just doesn't. Because let's face it, the you know, the 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 goal of capitalism is to maximize profit. That's every incentive they have is maximizing profit. Yeah, yes, and capitalism works in a lot of different ways, but it seems like uh, yeah. it works in the healthcare industry for a heck of a lot of people. But uh, you, what you're talking about is those lower income folks, the poorer folks. Uh, now it's even creeping up into the you know the middle class from that standpoint. It seems like yeah. our current system doesn't work for them. Like that's a, maybe everybody listening to this podcast, like me in particular, the healthcare system has pretty much worked well for me because I've been employed with somebody who offers great health insurance. But you're talking about the, yeah. the giant gap uh, of our fellow Americans, millions of people who are suffering and not getting the care that they need. Right. Uh, and so we we got on this point talking about uh, you know the big money behind it, and some people might be think listening to this and going, well, "What are we going to do in PA sixteen? What can we do in Erie or Butler about this?" But just a little bit of background on uh, Mike Kelly and his influence uh, by these industries. So OpenSecrets.org, uh, which is the website for the Center for Responsive Government, uh, reports in 2017-2018, Kelly received over one hundred and fifty thousand dollars from the insurance industry. So mostly insurance political action committees receive 73k from pharmaceutical health care packs, 55k from health professionals. So that's over over a quarter of a million dollars. So I mean is that part of why you see well, you know you said if somebody's going to get a dollar it's going to lean them in that direction. Well, you get a quarter of a million dollars, now you're really going to lean in that direction. Is the influence of the, you know these organizations in our politics is that part of the reason uh, as well why you don't see America moving forward in the interest of its citizens as opposed to in the interest of the special interest groups? Oh, absolutely. I mean these companies aren't giving him this money because they love Mike Kelly. Um, this is they're looking for return, for return on investment, and this is probably among the best returns on investment that they get. And actually, I didn't mention this before, but I was I was I was kind of peripherally in that game before. Um, I was the president of the Pennsylvania Society of Anesthesiologists probably about eight years ago, and on a, on a much smaller scale. But we used to do the same thing. We used to go in, you know, every year we'd have our legislative uh, conference and we'd go talk to our our um, our Congress people, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the interest of patient care, and granted, and some of it was for improved patient care, but let's face it, some of it was for improved income for us. And uh, I mean, my group spent millions of dollars nationally on this. Um, and again, we were small potatoes compared to insurance yeah. companies, um, oil companies, you know, um, defense industry. We were nothing compared to them. But we put a lot of money in and, and basically I've, uh, and that's probably talked to every congressperson in 
in that in, in, the, in the 16th, you know, for the last uh, over, not not so much recently, but over the last you know 15 years before that, um, where the average person doesn't get that access, right? Right. I have a, a colleague. I work in the IT industry, and we're part of a nonprofit association. And people are talking about, you know, this association that provides all sorts of services to its members. Should it do government lobbying? And people were debating that. And this person said, like, I hate to break everybody's hearts, but let me tell you how it works. If you're not a donor, significant donor, they are not going to sit down and meet with you. So all this talk of let's make the case, let's write some letters. I'm sorry, but the reality is unless you donate to them, they are not going to give you uh, the time of day. And that's what you're saying. It's kind of the reality of it. That's how you got access is you buy access. Yeah. So, uh, well, if we've talked to somebody, people might be like, boy, this is, you know, really depressing, this conversation about from a healthcare standpoint. But let's talk about going forward. So can you talk about why you're supporting Kelly's opponent, Ron DiNicola? And so I don't know if you and Ron see eye to eye 100% on the same healthcare program, but what I understand is you're in lockstep that healthcare is a right for every American, and plus he's not accepting corporate uh, PAC money, so he's not in the pocket of this, you know, healthcare special interest groups. Can you talk about why you're supporting him and what you hope he does going forward to help provide uh, health care for all um, in PA-16? Well, you know, Ron, Ron's not quite where I want him to be. I mean, but that's okay. He's a whole lot closer to where I want him to be than Mike Kelly is and a whole lot closer than Mike Kelly ever will be. And I, and I am confident that we can help him evolve a little bit. Um, Ron, Ron, I think wants, I'm pretty sure wants to expand Obamacare, which is not a bad thing. You know, uh, it's not enough, but it's not a bad thing. But the other thing with Ron is he, you know, he was he was active in politics uh, what 15 years ago or so. Yeah, 20 years and, ago he ran. Yeah, yeah, and you know, it was a different. It was a different time back then. And then he kind of he kind of did his own thing with his you know with his legal career, and he was really out of it. So he's he hasn't seen the. Um, he hasn't seen the evolution of of healthcare, or at least of healthcare groups like ours. Um, that really we're in our infancy. Uh, Ron's Ron's in a, in a in a pretty big pot with people that's just not quite where we are with it. Um, especially politic, you know, the politicians. Um, the the people seem to be there. If you ask them, you know, specific directed questions about how they want their healthcare, they seem to be more with us. Um, but I think that at least. At least Ron is a person that will have his ear, and and he's he's close. He's not where I want him to be, but he's close. Yeah. Um, so can you talk to the folks who are listening to this who are still in search of the perfect candidate, and they're saying like, well, he's not the perfect candidate, so I'm going to hold out for the perfect candidate. I guess what would you say to them, you know, if they're an on the fence voter in that regard? Because it sounds like you're saying, hey, it's not what I view as perfect, but it's certainly closer to, to where I want it to be. Would you encourage that person to, uh, you know, vote for the person who's closest to them and not hold out for the person who's perfect in their mindset? You know, absolutely. And I think I think what we have to do is we have to vote for the the person that's closest to our own uh, you know, to our own ideology as possible. And then once that person gets in, we have to push that person further. Um, you know, nothing happens Nothing happens if we don't continue to push. Roosevelt would have never done the New Deal if the people didn't make him do it. He actually, he actually came into government, or he came into the presidency promising to um, cut, um, cut expenses, or cut, cut expenses and balance the budget. Hmm. 
uh, he soon learned that you know, under the conditions he was in, that wasn't going to work, and the people pushed him to start the New Deal. And look what that's done for people over the over the, you know over seventy five years until uh, until the Reagan counter revolution. Right. Yeah. Interesting. You bring up uh, you know past presidents and the the New Deal and all that, where people think they just walked in and flipped the light switch and made that change. Now, there's the influence of the people speaking up and doing that and moving one or two steps at a time in that direction. The analogy I use is, you know, we're living in Western Pennsylvania. If you want your candidate to be in Denver, Colorado, and the only two you have to choose from, one's going to Chicago, one's going to Boston. Choose the one who's going to Chicago, because that's going to get you way, way closer as opposed to all the backtracking that you're going to have to be uh, doing. So, you know, holding that for the candidate, you just won't end up voting unless you run yourself, and then no one will vote for you. Yeah. And in the last election, I mean, we see what not voting did. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and I'm not blaming the people who didn't vote, because I think that a lot of them had a very good reason not to vote. I mean, they weren't given a good choice, but certainly they were given one better choice, <laughs> and, and it's it's really it's really panned out. That would have been a whole lot better of a choice than we got. That we have now. Right. Well, that's all the time that we have. Dr. Talarico, thank you so much for your time today and, and giving us insights. And, again, I can say uh, from personal experience in the last 24 hours, uh, thank you for being a good anesthesiologist uh, because uh, without good anesthesiology, um, it's going to be a whole lot more painful for folks. And, like I said, yesterday was uh, I just went in and took a nap um, and, uh, and had a fine time. So I appreciate your insights. Again, thanks, thanks for all that you do. Thank you. been my pleasure. Our podcast today is over, but there's still more that we need to do. As we talked about at the start, for democracy to work, we can't be bystanders. We have to participate. You can help, again, by sharing this episode with your family and some of those on-the-fence voters who live in our district, and then by voting on Election Day. Let's surprise those special interest groups, the political action committees, and the big money when we take back our district on Tuesday, November 6th, and once again, put people first. I'm Jim Roddy. Thanks for listening to October Surprise. Surprise.